this week on the Back Table Podcast. When you give them sound with the cochlear implant initially, the sound honestly sounds like garbage. It does. And so expecting a child to who has a normal hearing ear to listen to a garbage sound and want to listen to it and pay attention to it, I think is an unrealistic expectation. So you have to work with them. And fortunately, implant technology supports that. So technically, the FDA approval for single-sided deafness is only for one of the companies. But all the companies do what's called streaming. So just like we can stream into our headphones, like we're streaming now on this podcast, you know, you can stream into a cochlear implant. And you need to kind of have all those pieces in place that the child has to have some daily time on top of working with a speech therapist for an unclear period of time where they're going to be streaming into the affected ear and going to periods where they're going to hear things that sound awful to them with the idea that between time and audiologic programming and speech therapy, that it'll get to a place that they'll have a balance of sound on both sides. And that's what the parental commitment needs to be. And if the parent's not going to do that, if they are going to presume that it's like a light switch or, God forbid, even worse, if we presume that it's like a light switch, the child's not going to do well. And then it's not the right answer for them. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Backtable ENT podcast. Our mission here is to bring you high-quality otolaryngology content that enhances your medical education and gives you answers to those burning questions that pop up in your day-to-day work. Quick introductions. My name is Ashley Agan, and I'm a general ENT at UT Southwestern in Dallas. And my name is Gopi Shaw. I'm a pediatric ENT at UT Southwestern in Dallas as well. How are you doing today, Ash? Hey, Gopi, doing so well. Excited for this podcast. Always excited to be talking to you and our guests on Sunday mornings. It's good. Well, it is good. We have Dr. Anita Jayakumar. She's a pediatric otolaryngologist practicing in Akron, Ohio, with a focus on ear surgery. She's here today to talk to us about single-sided deafness in children. Welcome to the show, Anita. Oh, thank you so much, Gopi and Ashley. It's a pleasure to be here this fine Sunday morning with you guys. (laughs) Anita, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your practice before we get into it? Sure. Um, So I am a pediatric otolaryngologist by training, um, but I've always had a really strong interest in ear surgery. And most of it has been in kids until very recently, where I was given an opportunity to start my own program. It is under the auspices of a hospital. So I work in the Mercy Bon Secours system and I work part time now. So I started an otology program there for adult and pediatric ears, as well as a cochlear implant program. And it's sort of considered a little bit of an underserved part of the country because Ohio has a lot of big hospital systems. And so it's a pretty active, robust, but very fun practice. That's great. That's awesome. So today we're talking about single-sided deafness in children um, specifically. So let's get into it. Can you talk to us about single-sided deafness? Are we mostly talking about sensory neural hearing loss when we say that? Or what, what do we mean? I think, you know, when you talk about hearing loss, as you guys are so well aware, it could be such a wide range of things. But I think for the focus of this podcast, I was hoping that our focus would be sensory neural hearing loss in children. And I mean, in general, hearing loss is vastly underestimated and we don't give as much credit to how much our patients are struggling. So yes, for our talk today, it's really how it impacts children and some of the things that hopefully we can learn together to do together. So Nia, do you see, do you find that a lot of your kids are 
you know, the three-month-old babies that, you know, failed their newborn hearing screen in one year, or what percentage are older kids that maybe they got through uh, their newborn hearing screen, otherwise healthy, and then, at you know, their first pediatric hearing screen at age four, they, you know, had a failed hearing test. How do your patients Gosh. present, I guess, is my question. Probably a combination of both. So when you look nationally, the nice thing about hearing loss, particularly since neural hearing loss, is that we have a lot of international and national numbers to look at. So overall, when a child is born, they have an incidence about one in 1,000 of being born with single-sided deafness. And that actually rises to about 14% by the time they reach about age 6 to 19. So I see probably both quite a bit. I would say the older ones usually get caught by their teachers as opposed to necessarily a primary care provider or physician. The younger ones, yes, the goal would be to catch them through newborn screening. Absolutely. If we did screening well and the follow through well, and all of our states have good and bad times with that. But our hospital is a birthing hospital for the region. So a fair number of my kids that come through do come through the birthing process. And just to clarify, when we say single-sided deafness, we're talking about, you know, having a single-sided profound hearing loss, or does this category also kind of include some of the kids who might be, you know, moderate, moderate, severe? You know, obviously, I think my assumption is that every, that they would all have one good hearing ear and that the other side has got yeah, you know, some sort of loss. That's exactly right. I think the the real granular definition of single-sided deafness is that you have profound loss in one ear and completely normal, unrestricted hearing in the other ear. But as we know, the practice of medicine is never black and white. So definitely there are kids that kind of range the spectrum where we say profound loss in one ear and normal hearing the other ear. But if they have moderate loss in one ear, normal hearing in the other ear, is that a functional ear for them? And I think those are the kinds of things that we don't necessarily always give practice to, that there is a difference between function and objective testing. Yeah. And in the different age groups, so we talked about the newborn, the you know preschool, school age, and the older teenager. How do they present differently in terms of how, how's your counseling or your approach different in each age group? So I guess let's start with the babies, because that's always the most difficult. I mean, it's all difficult because, you know, ultimately they have normal hearing in one ear. So you're talking to some extent philosophically. You're talking to parents who usually know someone who doesn't have hearing in one ear, maybe, or has heard of someone and they've never done anything, but they're, quote unquote, a successful person in life. So there are always a question is, why do I have to label my child or why do I have to do anything at all? But the reality is there's more and more data. I mean, the data has been around since the 80s that if a child has untreated single-sided hearing loss, they have educational challenges. So it really starts as a baby. You identify them early. We need our early identification to work so well. But more importantly, we need our early identification going into early intervention to work really well. It doesn't help to identify the baby if we just kind of sit on them. You know, we have to identify them and direct the family. And the intervention, contrary to what people think, doesn't necessarily have to be a device. I mean, that is about patient and parent choice. It really needs to be awareness that there are options. Like, I think the days that we said, oh, you have normal hearing in one ear, you'll be fine. Those days are gone. And if they're not gone, they should be gone. What we want to say is, okay, you have normal hearing in one ear. That's awesome. 
how can we make this better for you? And so it starts with identifying as a baby. You got them into early intervention and you just watch them closely. We don't know if they're going to have issues with the other ear. We don't know what their etiology of hearing loss is. And there's a pretty wide range of etiology for single-sided deafness in babies. And then as they get older, the same things, you know, the kids that don't have an intervention have a high incidence of failing or repeating at grade. That is sometimes in some literature, 10 times the average population, which is sometimes in line with what kids with bilateral hearing loss have that don't have intervention. So really, we know there's an impact to it beyond just directionality and the ability to drive, which is what a lot of people try to boil it down to. And it's much more than that. And in terms of the impact of um, trouble in school, the single-sided hearing loss doesn't even have to be deafness. I mean, the impact is at the level of mild to moderate. You know what I mean? So I I think that as the ENT, it's important for us to take it very seriously and talk to the families, especially the school-age kids about, you know, FM system and preferential seating and, you know, how do we help them even in those school environments? Absolutely. In adult world, they talk about the cocktail hour, right? So like if you have single-sided deafness as an adult and you're at a party or a gathering, something fun, you then lose half the room because you are your good ear is only pointing in one direction. Well, imagine a child in a playground, you know, the most fun thing they can be and the kids are all milling around them and playing, but they lose half of the interaction of what's going on in that playground, which is a very fluid environment. So A lot of these kids get labeled as being socially awkward or distant or certainly, as we know, kids, adults, people are not forgiving. So the kids then get labeled as being unsuccessful people. And it really is no fault of theirs. They just don't have access to 50 percent of the conversation and interaction that's happening, which makes them pariahs is what ends up happening. Yeah. And another thing that I think comes up a lot um, is like the concept of um, cognitive load and, you know, needing to use more brain power to kind of figure out what's going on in the classroom because you're only, you you know, you may not be hearing things that are happening on one side. Um, Can you speak to that at all? So I think that's a great point. I think this cognitive load and cognitive fatigue. So the reality is that they're having someone who has hearing loss and who's, let's say, presumably adjusted well, is having to constantly be attuned to what's going on in their environment. And the way they do that, if they don't have a technology piece to help them, is that they swivel. So they're constantly swiveling their head. So that in and of itself is exhausting. But the reality is that they have gaps. So regardless of how well they're swiveling, they're going to have gaps in what they get in their attention span. So they're in a classroom, they miss, let's say if they're really good at swiveling, they miss 30% of what's being said to them. Well, imagine if you miss 30% of all your medical school lectures, you know, I mean, that's a lot of reading and extra time you have to put into it to kind of fill in the gaps. Plus, if you miss the wrong word, something that says it's not correct, and you miss the not, Well, then you've kind of completely grasped the wrong concept of what's being taught to you. And then so on and so forth applies to meetings, applies to job descriptions, applies to all of those things. So it really ends up kind of cannonballing as things go and they're exhausted. So, you know, sometimes the parents will say they don't want to go out with their friends. Well, gosh, if they've just had a full school day, 
they're tired. They don't right. want to go out with their friends. And, you know, the world doesn't exactly understand that for yeah. them. I feel like for some families, it's easier to describe them if like with glasses or vision. If it's, something's blurry and, you know, they're trying to read the board, you're going to get tired of trying to read the board within, you know, five, 10 minutes. You might take a break, your gap, and then maybe you're trying to read again. Um, I feel like sometimes that analogy can help a family understand because hearing, I feel like, isn't always just depending on the family or the patient. Well, absolutely. It's surprising, isn't it? Like if you tell people, would you leave one cataract in? They probably wouldn't leave one cataract in. Or would you wear just one contact lens and go about your merry way? But for hearing, that seems to be an acceptable concept still. The other question would be the importance of sound localization. So you need two hearing ears to be able to localize sound, right? So I think um, that's another thing that gets overlooked, you know, when we're like, oh, well, at least, you know, they've got one good hearing ear, they'll be fine. But I think that's a pretty big deal when you're navigating the world. I completely agree. I mean, if a child can't safely cross, cross a road, well, that's a safety issue, right? And I think anyone would say it's a safety issue if a child can't safely cross a road. But yet, by having unbalanced hearing, they cannot safely cross a road. They look left, right, left, but something barrels through on the bad side or affected side. They, they don't know. So it's a safety hazard. And that goes into driving, too. Um, I was just going to say, we've talked about the impact it can have in school and work. What kind of impact have you found that it has on speech with one good ear and one ear that isn't hearing as good or has no hearing? So that's a tough one because technically when you have normal hearing, especially if you're in a language-rich environment, you're probably going to have pretty good articulation. So it almost makes it harder to get through to families who are making these hard decisions, right? that this is affecting your child because they don't feel what the child feels and their child sounds very similar to them. It's not like they have a bunch of artic errors. It's not like they are necessarily answering things completely incorrectly. Um, the concept is there because they get the broad concept, like the forest for the trees is there. So in general, kids with single-sided loss who have normal hearing on the other, on the unaffected side, the true definition, should have normal sounding speech. And it makes the paradigm almost more complicated. Yeah, that makes sense. And, and when kids are developing speech, there's a little bit of that little kid sound to it anyway. So it's kind of, you know, it's like, well, that's how, you know, three-year-olds talk. <laughs> yeah, and they're babbling and they're meeting milestones, you know, they're progressing. Um, so yeah, it's, it's really hard to kind of, sometimes I think that the eye doctors have it so easy, you know, just shut off one eye and everyone's like, oh, we wouldn't do that. But yet we shut off one ear all the time. It's like, right. why, why is the ear su such a bad guy? Like, why shouldn't right. we have two good ears, two good ears? <laughs> so. And then when do you get imaging and what, which do you prefer a CT or an MRI? What's your workup? Great question. So I think if they're older, I, and I might just identifying them, I probably get imaging right away. And I tend to prefer an MRI. There's a fair amount of robust data coming in the literature beyond the radiation issue that in an MRI, you're going to identify more issues that are pertinent to people with single-sided deafness. There's a high degree of hypoplastic auditory nerve, aplastic auditory nerve, um, and then other cochlear anomalies, which you really should be able to identify on a CT or an MRI. 
Now, the cell, of course, you know, as otolaryngologists, I'm the same as everyone else. I trained mostly on CTs. I love my CTs. So it was a shift. I really am not a neurotologist by training. So I had to teach myself how to look at MRIs and not freak out that I didn't have all my bony windows and cuts and things like that. And then you have to often sedate them. You know, if they're under double digits in age, you do have to weigh that risk of sedation. The problem is there's a fair amount of data out there showing that if they have a normal CT with normal IACs, they still can have an aplastic or hypoplastic nerve. So getting a CT temporal bone on someone with single-sided deafness, while it might appear normal to us, it may not necessarily be normal. And that definitely feeds into some of the options we might want to give them is that if they have a hypoplastic or aplastic nerve and you don't know that, and let's say you move forward, jumping right ahead into one of the potential treatments, right? Cochlear implantation. Well, then you probably haven't done your due diligence in counseling the patients about their outcome with implantation because you don't know that they have an aplastic or hypoplastic nerve. Not to say it's the wrong option, but the counseling needs to be different. So that might be a good place to get into hearing options, you know, hearing aid options and what what are the different options for children who have single-sided deafness. So the nice thing is that it's a wide array of options. It's good and bad. Like one of my uh, friends put it the night's way. It's like back in the day, 20 years ago, you know, you had a bicycle. If you were single-sided deaf, you got a bicycle. And now (laughs) you have like a Cadillac of options, like you have a Corvette and a Cadillac and a Mini Cooper. And and it's really, really overwhelming. So what are our options? So you do have the option of saying, I'm just going to watch them. But I think watchful waiting is an appropriate option for the appropriate family. But what does watchful waiting mean? It means that, one, you acknowledge that they have this and the kids need to be watched closely. They need to get audiologic evaluations at least every year because you're watching the affected ear as well as watching the presumably unaffected ear once you've done your medical workup. And you're watching how they're doing in school. Are the teachers noticing an issue? Do we need to make get them an IEP in school and make sure that they get preferential seating? Do we need to start with an FM system at school? So once you kind of march through those educational options, then you talk about some of the technology options. And, you know, we as otolaryngologists, we love our technology. And, you know, we will touch base about some of this. Sticking a technological option on a child without teaching them and their family how to use it is really not very helpful. And I think we do miss the boat on that quite a bit. So before we go into that and my personal soapbox, the technology options that we talk about is you can do a cross hearing aid, you could do some kind of bone conduction device, and then technically per FDA rules, once they're above five, and we can talk about that too, you can do a cochlear implant. But right now, cochlear implantation in kids is only approved for age five and older, which definitely has come back some of the current data. So the differences, though, are that really all the options except for cochlear implantation, you are bypassing the affected ear. So the cross hearing aid is sending the signal to the good ear. So I will say cross technology has improved substantially from when most of us were in training and that it's not quite as clunky and quite frankly, awful as it was, and it's better. And some kids, teens, do like it for certain situations. Um, So it's not an absolute no. When I first came out, I used to think that I will never prescribe a cross for my patient because they were horrible. But I would say that's evolved to being better. 
the Baja technology, I will say I, in fairness to my audience, I am not a fan of Baja technology for single-sided deafness because I just personally haven't seen too many kids that use it long-term. I've seen a lot of non-users because it's directing sound to the other side. They have to wear it. It's sometimes echoey is what a lot of my teens will tell me. And so especially with CI being an option, particularly when done properly, I probably tend to, if they're talking about a surgical option, I often will try to persuade them to do a CI as opposed to a Baja to get function in the affected ear. And can I stop you for a second and just have you elaborate on some of those terms for maybe our non-physician listeners? And, you know, when when you say, um, when you say cross, can you go into kind of what that means for the patient? You know, are they questions that frequently come up is, so am I wearing one hearing aid or two hearing aids? Or what does that like look like from a patient standpoint? What's your patient's feel? Thanks, Ashley. I know we get excited and we forget ourselves with our acronyms. So (laughs) across is basically hearing aid technology. So technically, they're wearing two hearing aids. There's one in the affected ear and one in the unaffected ear. And they're both designed a bit differently because you don't want to mess up the sound in the good ear, so to speak. So usually the hearing aid in the good ear doesn't have like a full seal that's blocking off the ear canal and things like that to mess up the good hearing that they have. But essentially, the hearing aid in the affected ear is sending the signal to the hearing aid in the good ear. And the child learns to understand that that signal is coming from the affected side. And if it sounds complicated, it is because children don't necessarily understand that right away. Um, so it's called cross because it's crossing over to the good side, essentially. There's also something called bicross, but that's for people who are, have hearing issues on both ears. And that's not the situation we're talking about right now. Right. So the big, the big thing with cross is that you're not actually aiding the the deaf ear. You're just kind of taking any sound that's coming from that side of the body and routing it over to the good hearing ear. Right, exactly. So again, if we go back to like our cocktail hour or playground, so if a child is actually focusing on someone on their good side, suddenly there's a signal coming from the other side and they're like, what's happening over there? And it may not be a relevant signal. So, you know, I mean, theoretically can be good. I, I think in a classroom setting, You can see how it would be helpful. But a lot of our measures are what we call best case scenarios. In the real world, most people are not in a classroom. Most classrooms are not quiet. You know, an audiologic booth, which is where we do testing and testing in quiet, is really not reflective of real world for like 99.9% of people. Well, the other hard part with uh, a cross hearing aid or hearing aids in general is with one normal good ear, at least in the state of Texas, and then the other ear, insurance doesn't cover it. So it becomes a a major cost issue here. Um, And then, you know, there are certain foundations um, where families can apply to aid if they're like, listen, we just don't want surgery, which is a very reasonable decision. But there's obviously a money issue. There are foundations. And then I don't know. I know there's loaner hearing aids in the school. I would imagine there's loaner cross ones. um, But you have to have a school system that has the resources, the audiologist, the equipment and the support system for that, too. No, a thousand percent. There's no doubt that our system is flawed, that you don't have hearing aid coverage from most commercial insurance or Medicare for that matter. But yeah, they will pay for a Baja or they will pay for a CI. And so you have people coming to you that just want to skip the payment part. 
So they just want to skip, you know, the medical part and jump right to surgery because it's actually covered, but they also want help. So yeah, a lot of programs, including ours, are focusing on loaner banks and things like that. The problem is you're dealing with humans, right? So loaner banks, I mean, they can they can find away their first child to you, but those <laughs> hearing aids may be gone, gone. And so just because they look right. nice and tell you all kinds of stuff doesn't mean that those hearing aids are going to come back. So you do have right. to be careful. And I'm sort of a trusting person. I'm like, oh, yeah, they'll bring it back. And the audiologist, you know, just pat me on the shoulder and they go, no, not back. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, Dr. Jay or Kumar. <laughs> exactly. exactly. So, yeah, no, no. <laughs> well, um, and so um, getting into the details of a Baja. So what it, when you say Baja, you know, what is what does that look like? And, you know, because I, I agree, it does always seem weird that someone would be able to, you know, insurance would cover a Baja, but not across hearing aid um, just because one is surgical and one is not. So Baja technically is a generic term that encompasses a whole bunch of stuff. So it traditionally means a bone conduction device. And so it's some kind of technology that's either worn or surgically placed on the affected side that's again routing the signal through bone to the unaffected ear, to the unaffected hearing ear. You don't need to have an intact auditory nerve or anything like that on the affected side for you to have a Baja. And if you're super young, meaning that you're too young as a patient to meet the criteria to get the surgery, you can wear it on a soft band. So the nice thing I will say about the Baja is that you can truly try it non-surgically and get some sense of whether it will help the patient or not, which I really do love. Um, because you can't do that with a cochlear implant. You know, cochlear implant is like you're all in or all out. But you can wear it on a soft band. Um, now, I will say also that my teens, uh, males and boys in general, are not enamored by wearing anything on a headband. I mean, and if you stick a bow on it, they're even more ticked off. But, <laughs> you know, there are ways that our audiologists have kind of come up with like rigging baseball caps and things like that, that you can put it on and get that band-like sensation. And they can really have a real-time attempt to see if they like it before they go for the surgery. And I tend to encourage my patients to do that because one, we have the capability. Two, from a billing standpoint, if they want, if you can get approval for Baja surgery, they can get the device and you don't have to jump right to the surgery. So they can truly try it for a several month period without burning any bridges for them. But again, they're not hearing on that affected side, which, gosh, it's really hard for us to conceptually understand that, right? That I'm doing a surgery on, let's say it's a right single-sided deaf ear, but I'm really not accessing the right side except anatomically. I'm really using your left side. And no matter how many times you say that, the patients don't understand that. And certainly other medical professionals don't understand that. They're like, well, they're hearing in that ear. No, they're not. They're really not. And it's really confusing, but it does have a role in our system. So if you have people who have been single-sided deaf for a long, long time who have normal hearing, well, the data on cochlear implantation is not as robust in getting them sound quality in the affected ear. So for them, if they just want to drive or certain situations, the Baja might be the best solution for them. And now, back in the day when Bajas were made, you used to have what was called an abutment, meaning that it was a screw that went in the skull. 
And then there was essentially a screw that poked through the skin. And that's what you clipped the hearing device on if you went surgically. Back in the day, Anita, that was 10 years ago. It was back in the day because I hated those screws. I could not stand those screws. I was like, oh, I was like, oh, my God, I just made my kid look like Frankenstein. Yeah. And, you know, and and the audiologists look at me funny, you know, but cosmetics matters. I mean, it matters so much in our field and it matters to children who already can't hear and are getting bullied and whatnot. Now, for an atresia kid, absolutely, I get it. And atresia is a different category. We're not talking about that today. Atresia means they have no ear for anyone who's wondering. But, you know, for a lot of kids, especially with the sort of variable hit or miss with single-sided deafness, I really struggled when Baja was the only option for these kids. Now we have Baja kind of options that are not abutments. Like you can put a similar kind of device underneath the skin and it's based on like a magnetic principle. And so what they wear on the outside is attached by a magnet. Quite frankly, I'm so much more excited about this. One is that the hearing outcomes are very similar to having something coming through skin. And two, cosmetics, again, it does matter. And I think if we can't justify doing it in our family and our children, we need to think about what we're setting up other people's children for and not take it for granted because they're the ones that have to wear it and are out there. Plus, there's so much data showing that when they have that abutment screw sticking through, Kids, for whatever reason, have such a high incidence of getting infected all the time. And no, it's not a cleanliness issue, contrary to what the general population thinks. We don't know why, but kids just get them infected all the time. And it's just sort of this hot mess, quite frankly. Yeah, Yeah, that's exactly what I was going to say. It's that there was all the issues with the skin overgrowth and infection, drainage and all that. And then they're not wearing it for four months because they got another infection and they stay dry for two months and they got another infection. It's like a chronic issue. Yeah. 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 And so like the whole purpose of it is not helping. Yeah. So when you're thinking about Cross versus Baja, really the advantage of the Baja is that you're not having to wear anything on the contralateral, you know, good hearing ear? Is that kind of one of the main Correct. differences? That's exactly right. Perfect. Yes. Couldn't have said it better myself. So let's get into the uh, cochlear implant for single-sided deafness. So we said the FDA approved it for kids five and up. Who makes a good candidate and how do you decide? All great questions. And if I had all the answers, I'd be retired for sure. But I will do my best to tackle it. So one, the FDA approval for kids only came in 2019. So it's really recent. I would say probably most of the data we look to are really coming from Europe. They have been 10 years ahead of us in terms of hearing outcomes and hearing technology. And so when you look at them, what their data seems to suggest is that it makes sense in some ways. It says the shorter duration of the single-sided deafness the better your chance of getting hearing back in that ear. And how is that shorter duration defined? So some papers suggest somewhere between four to seven years. And I'm saying these vague terms like suggested and all of that because we're not really sure. We think that if there's a ton of auditory deprivation, that we know that the visual cortex takes over the auditory cortex in the brain meaning your eyes work harder and your ears work less. But that data is really for people who have bilateral hearing loss. So what does it mean when one side of your brain is hearing perfectly and the other side is hearing not at all? 
we don't 100% know. So it's really hard to look at someone who has just heard about cochlear implantation and they're eight and their parents want to pursue it and say that this is not something you should try. That being said, I do think that because you're giving sound to an ear that has not heard, you can't simply put the device on and not have a mechanism for them to learn to use the device and expect that they'll be successful. I think that's a recipe for failure. And what do I mean by mechanism? Meaning that you have to have a team. So we as the surgeons can get the device in, right? Almost all of us have seen, done, do implants as otolaryngologists. And so it's not a matter of us being the variable. Hopefully we know how to do the surgery well. We come out with the certification as a general otolaryngologist. The issue is, do we have a team in place that can teach them to listen? Do we have a program in place that these kids can go in and constantly work on their affected ear, their implanted ear? Because when you give them sound with the cochlear implant initially, the sound honestly sounds like garbage. It does. And so expecting a child to who has a normal hearing ear to listen to a garbage sound and want to listen to it and pay attention to it, I think is an unrealistic expectation. So you have to work with them. And fortunately, implant technology supports that. So technically, the FDA approval for single-sided deafness is only for one of the companies. But all the companies do what's called streaming. So just like we can stream into our headphones, like we're streaming now on this podcast, you know, you can stream into a cochlear implant. And you need to kind of have all those pieces in place that the child has to have some daily time on top of working with the speech therapist for an unclear period of time where they're going to be streaming into the affected ear and going to periods where they're going to hear things that sound awful to them with the idea that between time and audiologic programming and speech therapy, that it'll get to a place that they'll have a balance of sound on both sides. And that's what the parental commitment needs to be. And if the parent's not going to do that, if they are going to presume that it's like a light switch or, God forbid, even worse, if we presume that it's like a light switch, the child's not going to do well. And then it's not the right answer for them. Wow. That was a very long answer to your question. No, that was that was really great because I think that highlights how difficult this all is. Um, and, you know, it's not black and white. And it, and it sounds like these kids are very different than, you know, the child that's born with bilateral profound sensory neural hearing loss. Absolutely. I think when I first started doing single-sided kids, I would go for some of their early programming appointments because I needed to understand I don't have single-sided deafness. And I wanted to see what it took for them to even just go through just a programming appointment. So the audiologist had to basically plug the good ear, stream in the implanted ear and have a semi-cooperative, non-screaming child to follow through. So then, you know, it answers the question. So the data suggests younger is better. For those of us who have children, you start to think, okay, well, when is my child going to sit for 30 minutes and put a block and a plug or a hole and a plug <laughs> or whatever it is they're supposed to do? And, you know, I, my children are older, but I do have good memories of their attention span. It was like a fly. You know, you'd be no. like, oh, a fly, they're gone. And, <laughs> you know, and you're supposed to program them to kind of get good hearing. I mean, Mine are all seven and nine that. and it's just flies. That's it. There's yeah, attention span. You're like, what? Well, how are you supposed to do this? And yeah. then you're supposed to program 22 electrodes or whatever. I mean, it's, it's a lot. It's just a lot. 
so it sounds like it's very, it's maybe not necessarily age dependent, but child and family dependent. Very much so. Okay. I would say, you know, I think we all know programs that call themselves like destination programs. And this is not critique per se. Maybe it is. I don't know. But if a family is flying to a program to get an implant, and particularly if they're single-sided deaf, and the program implants the child, as a lot of very high esteem programs do, but they don't have any mechanism for this kid to go through all this other stuff. Well, guess what? This kid has not had any favors done for them. It doesn't matter. A lot of programs can do the surgery. There's something to be said for having all the pieces in place. And, you know, one of the silver linings in COVID is that telemedicine and all this stuff has become better. And since, again, you can use streaming technology, these are actually probably pretty good candidates for streaming kind of programming. So the parents have tools on what to do with their child when they're home, whether they're remote or rural or whatever they may be. We know most of America does not live in urban America. Most of America lives in, you know, farming country and rural America. So these people need access too, but it has to be a comprehensive package. So any of when, how do you, what is the concrete things? I guess, do you tell the family like, okay, this is the date of surgery. We turn the implant on at this time. How many visits or is it just a once a week thing? With, how, how does it work in terms of the nuts and bolts so the family has an idea of a timeline? So let's, I guess if we start, so we identify the child. We do our medical workup, which includes imaging. Let's say it's best case scenario. There's normal anatomy, a normal cochlear nerve. I will have them do a non-surgical trial. And some of that is for the family. Some of that is for insurance because we need to get it paid for. And since it was just FDA approved in 2019, it's not, it's hit or miss whether it gets paid for. And I find that the odds are better if you can show that they've failed a non-medical trial. So the non-medical trial might be, quite frankly, a hearing aid in the affected ear, which, as you guys all know, is a bunch of crock because it's not going to do any good. But hey, you know, you do what you have to do. But the flip side of that is that you teach the child to wear something on their affected ear, even though it doesn't do anything for them. Because initially, guess what? Your implant's not going to do a whole lot of good for them either. So then they meet the speech therapist, they get an idea of how many appointments it's going to take. And I usually say, yeah, they have to come either through telemedicine or in person once a week. And every patient's going to be a different story. And for a growing and developing child, it may be many years before you really get to where you want to get. So, you know, parents will say, oh, doc, we'll come and see you forever. Well, that's awesome. Well, is your job going to come let you see me forever? once a week. You know, it's, I mean, you have to, you do have to talk about some of these difficult things and figure out how you're going to make it work for the child. So then we get to implant, activate in two weeks. And then yes, really at that point, we're kind of done, right? I mean, as a surgeon, as the interventionalist, we have done our job, but no, it's then you kind of watch with the team. And I do think we have a responsibility to our patients to do that a bit more. And I know that doesn't work with insurance and billing and all that, but really to understand what's successful and not successful, then you have to watch and get feedback from the therapist. So for us, every week we talk about our patients who are ongoing and who have had surgery. And yeah, for some patients, it's a quick, Joe is doing great. That's awesome. That's great. 
But, you know, for some, it's like, you know, we, I might think they're doing great. The audiologist might think they're doing great because they had their surgery. They came for activation. The audiologist did their programming. Their data logging looked okay. But the speech therapist might say, well, actually, for the last two weeks, they came with, the, with their implant and their purse. Well, guess what? It doesn't do a lot of good in the purse. So, you know, so then we have a check-in and say, okay, what's going on? And all of those things have to be in place for an unclear period of time for a child really to do well. Do you give people an estimate of like, you know, weeks, months, a year? You're just so, do, don't don't commit I, to a time. You just it just depends. Or this is like allergy shots, <laughs> two to five years. I say for a long time. I say I mean the average American family moves quite a bit. So I say you need to be established with either me or, or a reputable program for the duration of your child in high school. And my goal tends to be to get your child to graduate high school, which sounds crazy to us because we're all highly educated and have done all this school. But it's not intuitive for most children with hearing loss, actually, who are deaf and hard of hearing. So that always tends to be my goal that, hey, if your kid's doing really well, we will spread out the visits as best as we can and all of that. But the follow-up is needed to make sure that if the classroom changes, if you suddenly have a second language requirement that you didn't before, you know, if your location changes and you're suddenly in remote schooling or everyone's wearing masks, does this sound familiar? You know, if all those things change, that we have to be in touch with you so we can help you. Right. So this is super helpful. One last question for you. So it sounds like the CI is better, at least surgically, than the Baja in your opinion, which is great. Are there patients, I think you said this though, is the atresia patient really the only patient you'd be like, no, definitely a Baja for? Um, I think it depends on your practice. So certainly for people who have had a canal wall down mastoidectomy for really bad ear disease, or people who have a chronic draining ear that cannot tolerate a hearing aid, I think that Baja has its role for sure. But those are all conductive losses, right? So for a conductive loss, a bone conduction device is amazing. Amazing. We really shouldn't be talking about an implant for a conductive hearing loss. This category, though, is like the sensorineural hearing loss. I'm not, I personally, and a, probably a pretty robust group of people like me are not huge fans because, again, you're just not utilizing the affected ear. Yeah, that makes sense. Wrapping it up, what have we, what have we missed? Is there anything that you, you know, that we have, have failed to ask or that you would just kind of want to leave with our listeners as we kind of round out the show? Oh, gosh, I could go on forever. Um, <laughs> we're wrapping up. Um, I will say, I think the only thing that we didn't really touch on is etiology. So if a baby is coming uh, with a new diagnosis of single-sided deafness, a couple of things that we need to talk about beyond the nerve hypoplasia is that there is a strong association with congenital CMV. Now, congenital CMV, it's its own beast in and of itself. And most places in the country don't screen for congenital CMV. So the only ones that are caught are about, you know, the 10% of kids who are, have symptomatic congenital CMV as defined by a neonatologist. But unfortunately, congenital CMV, even in asymptomatic kids, has a pretty high degree of hearing loss. Up to 15 to 20% of adolescents with congenital, asymptomatic congenital CMV will develop sensorineural hearing loss. 
So just something to keep in mind, another plug to get imaging, because most of the times you can't get access to their blood spots by the time they come to see us as otolaryngologists, but you can usually find some of those periventricular calcifications on an MRI when you do imaging for workup for single-sided deafness. So another reason, is that definitive? No, it's not, unfortunately, but it gives you a pretty good idea when you put all the pieces together. And intervention is important, whatever that intervention is. I know I kind of dogged on Baja a little bit, but the key is intervention is important. Someone needs to be paying attention to these children and helping their parents help them is really key. I think that's right on. Thank you so much for joining us, Anita. It was so nice to have you here today. Thank you for all of our listeners um, who joined us. New listeners, thank you for stopping by. And our returning listeners, we appreciate your time always. You can find us on SoundCloud, Spotify, iTunes, Apple, and Ghana. You can follow us on Instagram uh, and Twitter at underscore Backtable ENT. We'd love feedback. Reach out to us for topics, ideas, speakers, or if you ever want to come on the show. Ash, what am I missing? Subscribe, rate, and share. (laughs) (laughs) And I think it's a wrap. (laughs) It's a wrap. Thank you, Anita. Thank you.